Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 74. So uh, today's podcast is going to be uh, eco-centered around French furniture. And, uh, you know, my, my five years spent in, in France, uh, it, didn't take, it didn't take two months to learn that the, uh, the craftsmanship on the inside of French furniture, the superstructure, the marquetry, the gilding, the carving, was far superior than anything ever done here in America. It's like talking about Major League Baseball and, and T-ball for a, a five-year-old. Um, second to none. Uh, phenomenal art, artistic endeavor and craftsmanship. And at times a bit overdone. Too much ornamentation. Too much flash. Too much flair. But on a craftsmanship basis, and, and if you isolate um, pieces of French furniture into small stylistic uh, components, it is... It's very serious stuff, and the the artisans of France are very serious. You know, they go to a seven year apprenticeship still today. Um, but what happened back in the eighteenth um, century and early nineteenth century is the importation of foreigners, particularly from Germany, and the Germans were really up on um, mechanical means. So incorporating mechanical means, um, some of them stem from clockmakers, into the making of the furniture. So. And uh, that's where we're going to pick this up today. But, uh, you know, when I see a piece of French furniture coming up at auction, and, you know, it may not catch my eye as a piece of uh, Georgian, but uh, all I think about is just world-class hands and minds created this and people that I worked with in Paris for a few years. And and I miss it very much, uh, you know. So, so uh, French furniture, French artisans in Paris during an ancient regime. So, throughout an old regime, French manufacture of luxury goods was advanced through many of the immigrant artisans. In the furniture trade, the most influential were the German cabinet makers, who contributed not only to the wide array of objects of art offered in Paris, but also the formulation of the Louis XV and the Louis XVI styles. Although this phenomenon is well known among cultural historians, a focused study of the German and French cabinet makers' guilds, in particular their stipulations and educational requirements, has never been made to explain how foreign expertise shaped almost solely the golden age of French furniture making in the 18th century. An early arrival from the Rhine to the Seine was Jean-Francois Aubin, who trained in both wood and metalwork in Germany before he came to France in the mid-1740s and settled in the Paris suburb of the Faubourg Saint-Ouen, where he seems to have been employed by the first Ebeniste Francois Velocruz, whose daughter he married and may also have been the person who introduced Aubin to Charles André Boulle the youngest son of André Charles Bull, who rented a workshop space to the German cabinet maker, and most probably employed or subcontracted work to him for many years. So from approximately 1751, Aubin worked in the royal workshops, first at the Louvre and then at the Goblin, and then at the Arsenal 
where he made marquetry cabinet work and metal work unrestricted by guild regulations. How lucky was he? This privilege combined with the client's interest in extravagance and their ability to purchase costly furniture allowed Aubin to produce pieces of highly elaborate design incorporating sophisticated mechanical devices. So one of Aubin's most important innovations was the mechanical table, which he invented in the early 1750s. Later in the decade, though, he invented the roll-top desk, a new form derived from the French bureauplat. He went on to produce individual pieces such as technological complexity that earned the titles of Ebeniste du Roi, Ebeniste of the King, from his mastery in these mechanical um, delights. And this was somewhere around 1754. So although the uh, Bureau de Roi in the French Royal Collection, the most famous of all writing desks in the world, in my opinion, was begun by Aubin and completed by his journeyman, Jean-Henri Reisner and Jean-Francis Lou, who delivered, delivered it to Versailles in 1769, six years after Aubin's death. It was Aubin who created and popularized this new form, which lasted for more than 100 years. So these technical advances were made possible in part by the freedom Aubin enjoyed at the Royal Workshops and his exemption from the strict guild regulations in Paris that would have obliged him to work in a single profession carefully defined by a regulating company or guild, or sometimes uh, it's referred to as a, as a union. But instead, he worked in a, and oversaw four processes, cabinet making, marquetry cutting, bronze casting, and the manufacture of the mechanical devices that decorated and operated his sophisticated pieces. Importantly, though, his varied interests were formed by the education and experience he obtained in woodwork and metalwork back in his home country of Germany prior to his immigration to Paris. Like Aubin, the furniture makers of Jean-Pierre Latz, Joseph Baumbauer, Guillaume Brenneman, Matthew Guillaume Kramer, and Guillaume Kemp, Francois Rubistek, and Jean-Henri Reisner. So <clears throat> they all came from the Rhineland in the west of Germany to Paris in roughly the middle of the 18th century. Their technical expertise and high-quality production, especially of mechanical furniture, reflects the German workshop mindset of culture, exemplified by the internationally renowned enterprise of Abram and David Rodigan. So, examining the German guild system, its obligations, rules, and regulations, and the nature of the training of apprentices and journeymen, sheds new light on why so many talented young craftsmen integrated to France and the impact they had on the expatriate community in and around Paris. In contrast to long united France, a close look at the German states reveals a very different history and economic situation and trade system to boot. After the Thirty Years' War, 
the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, a nation lost considerable territory. So, and it even at one time was under French control. Prussia at that point was a large and powerful state in the north, as were Saxony in the east and Bavaria in the south. But in between were hundreds of tiny domains, some of which were prosperous but too small to be of importance to the European arena. Patronage of the arts and crafts was, a, was extremely vital in Germany, as it was in France. But the market in each of the individual states was small, and trading was very difficult because so many borders had to be crossed and duties paid to reach a sufficient number of clients. So basically, in short, the German system did not allow for the development of an, of an industry of luxury, of prosperity and influential objects as it did in France. However, in many ways, the organization of the crafts and the corresponding guild system were, and remain today, very similar in Germany and France. Craftsmen were obliged to work only when one material, such as wood, metal, or clay. And even within each medium, there were further categories. Cabinet makers, for example, were not allowed to work as carpenters and collaborators, even between related professions. So this was a very complicated system. Manufacturing under private aristocratic patronage outside of the guild system, the Rodigans were able to produce furniture and clocks. Employing both wood and metalwork to execute a number of technological innovations. Further, the workshop trained numerous cabinet makers who later worked independently in places as far away as St. Petersburg. However, none, with the possible exception of, say, Adam Weisweiler, can be identified with later Ebenezer in Paris, where David Rodigan opened a sales room in 1774. The same year, Reisner became the ebonist or cabinet maker to the king. So altogether, the training of apprentices in German, Germany and the same as France was quite limited. German trade schools did really not exist, and there were only a few drawing schools, all of which followed the example of the Eco Royal Bull in Paris. Instead, German craftsmen gained much of their education and experience through the Wonderhousing, a compulsory system established by the guilds to which a journeyman were, were made to leave home and work in foreign workshops for a period of six to eight years. The system was intended to increase the standard of craftsmanship and the transfer of technical knowledge throughout the country. For the guilds, the system also facilitated the regulation of craftsmen applying for master status. As guild masters, could control more effectively the number of young competitors entering each town. Perhaps most importantly, though, the Weissenberg forms an important basis for cultural exchange of information and art forms. So for traveling journeymen, the system offered the opportunity to visit and experience different towns and working environments. The guilds asked these men to work at least 30 miles from home, and it became rule to stay in a particular workshop for only a few weeks at any one time. Craftsmen who did not have a father's or uncle's workshop to inherit used their tour obligatory or their 
obligatory tour to explore foreign nations and to seek opportunities to establish themselves away from home. So marrying a master's widow or daughter was a common practice that enabled many young craftsmen to take over prosperous business, thereby ensuring the continuation of a guild workshop and securing the woman's financial future of her late husband. So artisans shared opinions on where to go and which areas to avoid, which served to promote single workshops and attractive towns and to inform craftsmen of professional opportunities which may lie abroad. The social historian Siegfried Walder explained various diaries written by traveling journeymen and concluded that many young men planned their routes carefully with the intention of training and working in towns that had good reputations for their particular trade. So, since some artisans were willing to travel far distances, it is not surprising that numerous German journeymen reached London or Paris. The desire on the part of the journeymen to work in towns known for high standards of craftsmanship led to the Faubourg Saint-Antoine becoming a popular destination for Germans like Aubin in the 18th century. Traveling through France was easy compared to Germany, where, Germany, where journeymen often had problems proving their identity at the numerous borders and checkpoints, and on a regular basis got into trouble with custom officers and, and or police. This, combined with the fact that considerable numbers of German as well as Flemish artisans had been living and working in the Faubourg since the mid-17th century, attracted yet more compatriots. Indeed, by the middle of the 18th century, the German community in and around Paris was large and influential. The historian Alan Tilley calculates that half of the German population in the Faubourg Saint-Antoine worked as ebonistas. It is worth noting that their social life and working environment would have been made a little bit different from that of the German towns. However, unlike German towns, the Faubourg Saint-Antoine and its woodworking community in particular grew rapidly in 1714. The area consisted of only 939 houses, whereas by mid-century the same neighborhood had 500 carpenters and 400 cabinet makers alone. The increase and growing dominance of the woodworking trades formed the economic basis on which the area developed into one of the most densely population or urban regions in Europe even today. Whereas the corporations or unions, as some call within Paris, mostly excluded provincial artisans, foreigners, and even Protestants, 20% of all cabinet makers in the Faubourg Saint-Antoine were foreign. The integration by fellow countrymen into a network strengthened by collaboration and family ties supported the community and protected and provided privileged working conditions for journeymen who, gilded by the requirements of the German guild system, had originally only planned to stay for a few weeks. But it must be mentioned that politically, the, the journeymen were protected by the Monastery of Saint-Antoine, which owned the land in the Paris suburb and offered foreign workers the right of asylum. So these monasteries... Um, may have been a bit slack on um, funds, you know, monetary funds. 
So by having these um, itinerant or wandering artisans coming in from Germany and a few other countries, they would bring them in and for to give them almost give them protection, a place to sleep, a place to eat. They would let them work on their uh, cathedrals and their their monasteries and and build great things. Uh, but even these individuals still had interest in getting inside the Paris wall and working for, say, around the king. This was kind of a learning curve. They could learn somewhat, somewhat of the language and a place to get their feet wet before they moved on. And the, the monasteries and the cathedrals, it worked out wonderful for them. So, But economically, such Faubourg, living in the Faubourg, guaranteed the freedom to work outside the guild system. So journeymen, including... Those from the city could not afford to pass the master exam, were allowed to work for themselves and to employ artisans themselves. Many specialized in cutting marquetry panels or producing a single parts of furniture, thereby contributing to, as a collaborative enterprise that prospered through the high demand for furnishings within the city, and ironically, through subcontracts from guild members. According to the social historian Michael Stirner, the Paris Guild master entrepreneur could obtain cheaper labor of exceptional quality in the Faubourg, and their inhabitants had a share of the large market in the capital at per se. Stirner describes a system that forbade the craftsmen of the Faubourg to sell their goods directly to private clients, forcing them to depend on the middleman. While the guilds each operated community buildings in cities throughout France called mares or mothers, which were like running uh, house lodges that facilitated the integration of traveling journeymen. So in the Faubourg Saint-Ouen, contracts, appointments, and friendships were made among journeymen in their neighborhoods and presumably in many of the local taverns and watering holes. In both the French guild system and the Faubourg system, young men married into local families, and some became master craftsmen, incidents that were often closely linked. But indeed, as, the, as in Germany, a clever marriage could determine a craftsman's fate. Reisner married Aubin's widow, Francois Marguerite, in 1767, or they used the money from their wife's dowry to pay to pay the master title and the initiation into the guild network. It, but it should be emphasized, though, but however, that even upon achieving their master title, many cabinet makers remained in the Faubourg, testifying to the fact that the advantages of their social and professional position in the community outweighed the potential benefits of working and selling directly around the city. Patronage by the uh, Marchand Mercier and the Marchand Ebenistas, and, and this means dealers in objects of art and furniture, respectively, encouraged foreign artisans, both in the city and the Faubourg, to practice and develop their skills. In addition to influencing the design of furniture, these dealers promoted and sold objects that reflected the techniques introduced and perfected by immigrant makers. But of equal importance for the foreign craftsmen was the royal patronage, not only because of the, because of the crown brought extensively from the Marchand Mercier, they purchased basically from them, but also because they supported foreign craftsmen directly.
So throughout this ancient regime, the elite group of Ebenistas du Roi was dominated by foreign masters who were valued for their fashionably different styles and techniques and for the extraordinary quality of their craftsmanship. Moreover, though, these foreign masters employed and trained other immigrants themselves, thereby facilitating the influx and the exchange of foreign techniques, such as those seen in places like Oban's writing desk. Indeed, the extent of Oban's influence can be seen in the large number of comparatively simple writing desks and roll-top bureaus made by his contemporaries and followers. If not the exact design itself, at least the high fashion of this complex mechanical table. Among the guild masters, Oban's successors, Reisner and Lelou, and his brother-in-law, Roger Valacruz Lacroix, and Martin Carlin, all manufactures comparable objects of extraordinary quality. In the Faubourg Saint-Antoine, the German Godfrey Duster and Francois Rizel, master, made master in 16, 1764, likewise produced pieces similar to a band's, which were sold by dealers to their immediate neighborhood and elsewhere in the city, disseminating less sophisticated and comparatively inexpensive variations on this royal theme and taste. Aubin's style was also determined abroad by makers such as the German Jean-Pierre Latz, who worked in France and delivered pieces to royal patrons including Frederick II of Prussia in Potsdam and Charlottesburg. So surviving contemporary sources, however, say little about the <coughs> innovations and technological developments in mid-18th century Paris such as those made by Aubin in his furniture. And it's in, in, in his 1769 technical treatise, The Art of the, the Musier or The Art of the Carpenter, André Jacob Robo stated that unusual few furniture forms were often given foreign names, thereby incorrectly suggesting foreign origins for options that were actually developed in France. Robo, however, neglected to discuss the new techniques introduced by foreign craftsmen that, together with changes in fashion, led to the unprecedented variety of the new furniture forms. But in contracts, in contract, Jean-Felix Watin, the author of The Art of the Painter and uh, Gilder and Varnisher, a popular treatise for painters, members of his guild adopted foreign techniques and materials. For example, in the uh, imitation of Japanese lacquer, they used Varni Matin and Varni de Paris, as well as Varni du Docteur Glazier, which all was invented by a German craftsman and praised for its fine resistance and brilliance. The influx of German artisans and techniques into France also influenced originally by the German guild system that sent its journeymen to learn elsewhere. Although the guilds aimed to control competition within their cities. Instead, many Germans left permanently to work in and around Paris, leading, <clears throat> leading German guild masters to envy the country's workforce, saying that all it was built around, it was built all by German hands, all this furniture that's being made in Paris. And they soon realized rather late in the many, that many uh, talented young German men had found great success in the Ile de France, 
and were never going to return home, taking all their secrets with them. So, um, so that's uh, how it got started. And this went on for approximately 50 years in Paris, you know, this influx of the, the German makers and uh, German makers and the German innovators. But, uh, you know, to, to live around, I mean, we don't have the option of seeing many of these pieces in person here. We see pieces come up at auction. But to actually live around these pieces and work on them on a daily basis, you know, for this four and a half to five years, um, just, again, I can't stress enough the, the mastery of the, the mechanism, the mastery of just the, the wood jointry. Um, and the stylized uh, marquetry that they put on it. So, uh, and I must say, it was just a real honor to be there and to understand there's pockets all over the world where stuff is made that is superior. And when we talk about superior constructed furniture, we talk about the French. Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, signing off. Thanks all for listening.